I'm Kate Bowler, and this is Everything Happens. There's a feeling we can get when life has been too small for too long. It's not depression exactly, or even hopelessness, or anxiety or fear, but a certain form of exhaustedness. My wonderful friend Adam Grant and former podcast guest, you will love that episode if you haven't heard it. But Adam wrote a lovely piece for the New York Times about this feeling, and he called it by a wonderfully precise name, languishing. Languishing, he wrote, is a sense of stagnation and emptiness. A feeling like you're looking at your life through a foggy windshield. So if mental health runs on a spectrum from depression on one side to flourishing on the other, languishing is that dull blah that we sometimes overlook because it's not the worst. It's just not joy. And it can be hard to dream new dreams or find that ease or that momentum. Languishing is one of the great challenges of this moment as we try to live with the full spectrum of possibilities and emotions and dreams as much as we can, even now. So do I have a treat for you. I've had evenings and weekends open lately, so I spent it building a time machine and went back to 1969 to ensure today's guest was born on the island province of Newfoundland. Then I created a reasonable set of obstacles for him to navigate and watched him become one of the funniest people to ever call Canada home. He is a master of reinvention and the consummate dreamer you will meet today. And of course, I'm talking about Rick Mercer, Canadian comedian, television personality, political satirist. He is best known and beloved for his work on the CBC television comedy shows. This hour has 22 minutes and made in Canada and the Rick Mercer report. In 2014, he became especially fancy as he received the Order of Canada because he is like if you combined Steve Martin and Peter Jennings and your Aunt Linda, yes, the one with all the opinions, rolled into one human man. And his best-selling memoir, Talking to Canadians, made me laugh out loud and remember that every good dream begins with conscripting friends into ridiculous wigs. Rick Mercer, how is it that we are speaking? One of us has either done something terribly right or terribly wrong to bring me to this moment. I am so very pleased to be here, but we are speaking because my publicist told me to speak with you and he said, <laughs> you're going to love her. And she's a huge deal. She's a big wheel. No, she's medium sad is what he probably said. And you're like, all right, no. I bet I could, <laughs> so, bet I could handle I know that. you're a big wheel, that's about it. You are the most fun person to explain because to Canadians, you're like, if you combine Walter Cronkite and then the entire cast of Saturday Night Live, you're this incredibly trusted commentator who might also punch us in the esophagus comedically, of course. So, right. I would, I would never punch <laughs> anyone in the esophagus. <laughs> you're like, never convicted. No. So, you, <laughs> you grew up in Newfoundland, which for those who do not know, who cannot know, would you mind explaining perhaps maybe the independent spirit of Newfoundland? Okay, well, I'm from Newfoundland and Labrador, and it's interesting you say it's an independent spirit because uh, Newfoundland was independent until 1949. So uh, while I was born a Canadian and raised a Canadian and was used to Canadian money and the Maple Leaf and all that, my father's generation, they weren't born Canadians. They voted either for or against joining Canada. Um, and it was tight. 49% said, no, no, the hell with them. We're going on our own. <laughs> so it's natural that Newfoundlanders have always felt like outsiders. Also, 
the vast majority of the population of Newfoundland and Labrador live on the island of Newfoundland. So we're also one step removed. And traditionally, people made fun of us. And uh, so we were kind of laughed at. So that that made us put a chip on our shoulder, I guess. And uh, we talked funny. People always made fun of our accents. And there are some spectacularly ridiculous accents, I should admit. <laughs> Uh, so, yeah, we were outsiders. We're outsiders with an independent streak. And also, we're proud of the fact that we live in this ridiculous place that uh, it makes no sense to live there. <laughs> oh, we were also always, we were also always economically depressed <laughs> with yes. our own confusing time zone. Yeah. <laughs> In my uh, in my last surgery, I was delighted to realize that the nurse in this American hospital was this big dude from Newfoundland. And uh, when he was, it looked like he was going to snap the pen as he was writing on the clipboard. Right. He was like, what surgery are you in here for? And I was like, I don't know, whatever you clawed of me with your with your giant bear-like hands. And he looked up and he's like, wait, are you? for some reason he was like, are you from Canada? And I was like, yes. He's like, would you like to meet every Canadian in this hospital? And then with my little gurney, he took me on a tour. And I met all kinds of Newfoundlanders that day. Oh, good. You had this moment early on where you really learned how to kind of harness that independent dreamy kind of spirit which is to say you learn to try something that you had absolutely no idea how to do and were likely to fail doing and you had this wonderful drama teacher named lois who did not act like a typical drama teacher and seemed to know that you were a really terrible stage manager and should be doing something else well i was intrigued by drama ever since i was a kid and i was in grade three and i saw a school play and not a school play but actors came to the school and performed a play and it was life-changing for me because it was the first time that i was truly blown away i was miscast as a kid i didn't and i only realized this when i started looking back to write this memoir like i was happy enough and i was, certainly wasn't depressed or anything but i wasn't into stuff the way the other kids were like dinosaurs or dinky toys or whatever the hell kids you know kids go through <laughs> phases where they're obsessed with things i just yeah i, I was just not that kid and my mind was blown when these actors showed up and did a play. I just thought, oh my God, it's the most amazing thing in the world. I didn't think I could do that, but I just didn't know that people did that for a living. How amazing yeah. was it? And so it was always in the back of my mind. Finally, in grade 10, I went to a high school and I knew there was a drama club and uh, I was intrigued to join the drama club, not so much because uh, I wanted to do drama, but I thought it was probably a de facto gay straight alliance, which it basically was. But I didn't join <laughs> yeah. because I was in the closet. And the day they made the announcement, the drama club is meeting, a bunch of guys in the in the classroom were like, ooh, the drama club's meeting. Ooh, all the fags and the freaks are going to the drama club. And I died inside and I thought, oh, if I Aww. go there, I'll, I'll be branded as a homo. So I won't go there. The next, by the time next year rolled around, I didn't give a shit about anything like that. So I joined the drama club. And we did a play. It was a Commedia dell'arte play, and I hated the play. And I thought the lead was ridiculous. And I didn't really particularly like the people in the drama club. They were all older and they were a bit of a clique. I became the stage manager and I was terrible at that. And all I did was sit next to Lois, who was the director, and talk at her the entire time. And I found her endlessly fascinating, but I found the play terrible. So when the play was over, I said to Lois, well, that's it. I'm quitting the drama club. And Lois said, oh, no, no, you can't. If you quit the drama club, 
that will be one of the biggest mistakes of your life. Now, she, Lois is a bit eccentric, but I thought this is a little dramatic and over the top. I'm just talking about quitting a, an extracurricular activity. I've done that my entire life. And I said, why would it be such a big mistake? And she said, well, the next play is really important because it's a one-act play and it's going to the Provincial Drama Festival. And I said, what's the play? And she said, I don't know because you haven't written it yet. And oh. in looking back, if there's moments that really change your life, that was it for me in a nutshell, because I thought, yeah, okay, I'll write a play. And then yeah. I learned it was going to be a collective, which means it was going to be a creation of a group of people. And Lois put this group <laughs> of people together that by today's standards, I think in school, half of them would be classified as at risk youth. <laughs> and we were this motley gang of weirdos and not joiners and all sorts of stuff going on. And uh, we wrote and created this play that did win at the Provincial Drama Festival. But more importantly, it changed my life. I met my comedy partners. I suddenly knew what I was going to do. Uh, yeah. We would just sit around and say, we're going to be actors and writers in Newfoundland. And nothing else mattered after that. And we were singularly focused on having a creative life. And <laughs> I, I kept going ever since. It's a weird, it's one of the weirdest, I think, and loveliest things about artistic expression or just this sort of reaching for things and dreaminess is that our dreams really are so specific to our contexts. Like they, they tell us about who we are and then who we might be. The amount of time I spent as a young adult watching television shows about teenagers in California and their very important and difficult problems. Sure, and of course. It was yeah. so hard for them. It was sunshine all the time for my Winnipeg six-month winter. And <laughs> I, I it was a little helpful when um, this one character seemed very upset about a standardized test, which I realized like I might actually need to take at some point. So I did take the information from the show Saved by the Bell and approached my high school guidance counselor in Winnipeg. I was like, look, I, I think there's a test I'm supposed to take if I want to go to one of these schools. And that did, that did serve me well. So it taught but me I, well. Oh, that's good. <laughs> it did. But your um, first big splash was a hilariously, specifically Newfoundland dream. And you knew that audiences would love to hear more about an incredibly specific set of political questions and then, and then a national crisis surrounding the Meech Lake Accord. Now, for those of us who may not have been just just mired in the in the political hotbed of sure. the Meech Lake Accord. Sure. Why? Why did you do it? And, and just follow up. Why is that so funny? Well, it was the Meech Lake Accord was a, a, a constitutional amendment in Canada. And in order to amend the Constitution, you needed the, all provinces to sign off. And the whole point was to get Quebec to sign on because Quebec had never when when the Constitution was repatriated from England and came to Canada, everyone signed on the dotted line except for Quebec. So the current prime minister at the time, it would be a huge coup to bring Quebec truly into the Federation. Um, and in doing that, uh, they classified Quebec as a distinct society. And some people thought that, that there was a problem with that because uh, the provinces are all equal and this distinct society uh, label would in fact mean that Quebec was a little bit more equal than everyone else. Now, I didn't really have a problem with it and I wasn't a scholar of it and all the provinces had signed on, but then, 
uh, some provinces changed governments, and suddenly there were liberal governments in some of the provinces. And Pierre Trudeau, former Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau, came out of the woodwork, and he said that this is a terrible thing for Canada. And some provinces agreed. One of them was Newfoundland. And for a while, it looked like Newfoundland might be the one holdout. And this guy, Charles Lynch, who was a very famous Canadian journalist, he was a war correspondent, he was head of the Southern News Service, he was a major columnist and author in his 70s. He wrote this column that said, well, if Newfoundland is going to stop Quebec from truly becoming a partner in Canada, the solution is obvious. We throw Newfoundland out. They're a basket case. We don't need them. And then he said all sorts of terrible things. Yeah. With his tongue in cheek, quite frankly. But as a young man, as an angry young man, I didn't see the tongue in the cheek and I went ballistic. And I <laughs> subtitled my show, Charles Lynch Must Die. So it was called Show Me the Button, I'll Push It, or Charles Lynch Must Die. <laughs> and we opened in this little tiny theater in Ottawa and at the National Arts Center, which the National Arts Center has a big, beautiful opera house, but this was a little theater they ran uh, across town in an old garage. And Charles Lynch <laughs> heard about this. And of course, he started writing columns about how he was the new Solomon Rushdie of Newfoundland, <laughs> and that a fatwa had been put on, on his head by an angry young man by the name of Rick Mercer. And he said, well, I'm going to be there front row and center. I won't be coward. Uh, you know, I, I, I won't be... I'll be there watching. Of course, I was like, oh, my God, what have I done? And <laughs> then we ended up in a room together. And he was quite nice to me. And he said, I won't come to the show if you're too nervous. And I said, well, I nothing can make me more nervous than I am. So he came to the show. He, too, stood up that night when I got a standing ovation. But then he started <laughs> writing columns about the show, again, with his tongue in cheek, but calling me, you know, about how terrible it was the show was happening. But <laughs> also saying it was hysterically funny and I'm referring to me as the boy genius. And uh, <laughs> he sold all the tickets for me. And of course, all the journalists in Ottawa couldn't believe I wrote a show called Charles Lynch Must Die because he was one of the most respected elder statesmen in that business. They were like, who oh, in God's name is this saucy 19, 20 year old from Newfoundland to say Charles Lynch must die. So I became a bit of a cause celeb and enfant terrible. And, uh, and it, and it exploded into a national tour and uh yeah it changed everything <laughs> i just think it's got such a wonderful like and then i became very famous with a 70 minute one man play about the controversy surrounding the meech lake accord for most canadians was incredibly boring the idea that you would write a play about a constitutional amendment it was ridiculous but and then i locked <laughs> in you know i talk about luck being so important and yeah. luck can go both ways. Uh, I locked in. And Charles Lynch promoted the show all the way. Everywhere oh. we went, we, we would get on the radio and yell at each other. And people just thought, oh, well, I must go down and see what that's all about. The very sweet, very tender, funny last joke from him. Um, oh, yeah. Well, he, he became sick. Uh, with cancer and he had cancer surgery and i looked i asked around and they said well his spirits are high but uh he's very very ill and he again wrote a column about how he didn't want to die too soon because as long as he's alive that frigger mercer is making money and so we were heading into vancouver <laughs> so great and we headed into vancouver and uh i called him up and i said uh, uh you know sorry to hear how uh, you're doing? He said, by, I said, by the way, we've taken Charles Lynch must die off uh, off the poster in Vancouver. It's just called show me the button. I'll push it. And he said, why in the hell would you do that? 
And I said, well, no offense, uh, you might die. And if you do, you'll be on the front page of every newspaper in Canada because you're so famous. And I'll be in <laughs> Vancouver with a, with a show that says Charles must die. That's terrible taste. You know. And he said, well, how long is your run in Vancouver? And I said, six weeks. And he said, okay, I won't die for the next six weeks, I promise. But don't you take my name off that poster. But I said, okay, I won't. And he ended up living for many years. And when he did eventually pass away, I was on television doing this hour's 22 minutes. So I was probably two or three years in. And uh, he died. And uh, about a week later, a, an envelope arrived in the mail. And I opened it. And it was the bulletin from his funeral. And there was a sticky note attached to it. And it was in his handwriting. It said, for your files, regards, Charles Lynch. <laughs> oh, that is so funny. I know. What a wonderful, what a wonderful sardonic person. Yeah. yeah. He got the last laugh. The Everything Happens community is one that talks a lot about uh, luck, like good luck, bad luck. Um, I know you're so generous about your success and saying that, you know, people who are successful people are also very lucky people. But I'm so struck about your ability to reinvent uh, in the midst of failure. I mean, you were I love this story where you're the head writer of a three hour show without intermissions. And you said it was just so it was so powerful. You just could not cut a single a single word. No, it, and, and not only that, it had the most impenetrable title. We have no pity for the pseudo downtrodden. I mean, imagine how much angst was on that stage. And it was a collective, but I was the head writer, de facto head writer. And uh, Lois was directing it. And it was a big budget production for the theater company that we sold it to. Yeah. And uh Lois begged me, you have to cut some, you have to. And I looked at it and it was like, it's perfect. I can't be it's done. Perfect. It's just all so perfect. <laughs> each and word a each miracle. Single word. Oh, a layer after layer. Yes. And uh, to this day, I mean, I was like 18, 19 when we did that show. To this day, I know people who, if they're talking it, my name comes up, they'll say, well, you never had to sit through. We have no pity. The show he did, my God, I never said it was it was awful. And it's like 30 years later, 32 years later, they're still complaining. That's so funny. Yeah. That certainly taught me to be brief. Yeah. And, and then people you try out yeah. the show because everyone in the show was kind of popular from our comedy troupe. Yeah, uh, we sold lots of tickets to this show. And I think we sold out before we even opened, but every night I was saying it was like a, <laughs> it was like a fire alarm went off after about an hour. The actors couldn't hear, but the audience could because people were just like, oh. They, and once one person did it, and people were like, oh, it's okay to storm out. Yeah, they, you like held a siege, just a slow yeah. war of attrition. Yeah. <laughs> But you but learn you, from that stuff. You learn yeah. from those failures. If you don't learn from those failures, you're a fool. And I learned so much from so, so many failures early on. And luckily, when it counted, when I did that one-man show or when we opened this hour's 22 minutes, yeah. uh, I locked in and knocked it out of the park. But if it wasn't for those other failures, I don't know if that would have been possible. Do you feel like when you have a moment of 
failure. I'm just thinking in my mind of times in which an editor has given back a book that I thought was pretty good. <laughs> There's just like full chapters were gone. Chapters were missing. Chapters right. were no longer part of my my yeah. new and upcoming book. But the um, the letting yourself, um, I don't know, just like like a plant, like something gets pruned off so that something else can grow. Do you feel like that or do you need a minute sometimes to nurse those uh, wounds? Oh, sometimes. It, well, it always hurts. And I can't tell you how many times, especially when I was writing long form and, and doing the sitcom that I did, I would give this script to Gerald, who was the showrunner, also my partner, and we lived together. And he would come back and the first 11 pages would be crossed out. And then it would say, started here. I'd be like, Eleven, that, that means there's only seven pages of the script. That means I have to write 11 more at the back end. He's like, yeah, no, the first 11 pages are no good. And it's devastating. But uh, I decided a long time ago that I would trust his opinion. So when he yeah. uh, does that, and it, with the Mercy Report, when he said that this rant is no good, I just trusted myself for making that decision so many years earlier that I would, I'd always trust his opinion. And I never pulled rank like, well, who are you to tell me that yeah. You know, I know what's good and I'm going to do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Being criticized by people who love you is a certain kind of trust fall, isn't it? Well, I have to trust the critic. Uh, and I, I kind of despise critics uh, like so many people in show business do. But that's not to say that I'm not open to criticism. Like, I will take Gerald's criticism because I trust him. I'll, there's many, many people that I will take the criticism from. Yeah. Uh, but critics, by and large, I don't have a lot of time for them. Some of them are good, but I don't understand them. And uh, and yeah. I think too often they make sport of uh, of criticizing people. Yeah. But it's their sport. I just don't yeah. want to play it. No. I like the people who try. I just like the vulnerability of that. I love watching people try. I mean... Right. What feels, I hate is when yeah. people say, you know what you should do? Oh, 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 Just thank drives you. me crazy. <laughs> you, oh, you've got a podcast. You know what you should do? You should do. It's like, no, why don't you do that? <laughs> oh, you know what you should do? You've got a podcast. You know what you should do? You should do a top 10 list every time. And you're like, no, because that's not what I do. Yeah. And yeah. I have, you know, I have a friend who has a, has a cookie shop. Every second person goes in, you know what you should do? <laughs> No, you know what you should do. Yeah, we. I there's a version of that for um, suffering people that goes something like, um, "Well, have you tried?" And it's always um, someone's um, recently seen a documentary, a lot of eye contact. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, or a lot of um, I've done some research. The research is just a lot of what they mean is light googling. And there's yeah. just suddenly a, just a whole a whole world of medical possibilities that should have oh, opened yeah. itself up and to me. There are certain holistic people, and I'm not going to upset the holistic community but i worked with one and uh who's endlessly fascinated by that stuff and she would meet someone who would say have you know cystic fibrosis and she would yeah. like have you tried oregano <laughs> have you tried oregano you're like the woman has cystic fibrosis she's had it since she was a child <laughs> She's essentially terminal. <laughs> There's no cure, and it goes on. And yeah, yep. yeah. have you tried it's... oregano? Is it... 
You should call the Cystic Fibrosis Association with that information. <laughs> yeah, with whatever. They opened a weed. They opened a weed store in St. John's, Newfoundland, and you know they did one of those word. What, what do you call that? Word, word jumbles. Yeah. What are they called? Like the word clouds. Word, word clouds, and it says, and they had the two large words were cannabis cures, and then it was all <laughs> the different things, and it was like AIDS. <laughs> it's like. <laughs> Wow, these Canada, are big. Cancer. Bold. These are big. God, you should. Someone should write an article about that. I know. God, smoke a joint. Yes. And I understand people wanting to believe that, but yeah. It's... You had a just a long stretch of being, I mean, not not a, like a not by your admission like a a terribly devoted student. Though you gave a strong pitch for staying in school and the importance of education, I really, mm -hmm. I really, I really liked that. Uh, but in high school, you joined the circus. I mean, an actual circus with Newfoundland's only professional clown. Oh, I'd love for you to tell me about him. And also, I just thought he was a perfect example of the kind of person who helps us dream ridiculous things. And... Sure, sure. Uh, well, his name is Ben is Benny Malone. He's still with us, and he has he was the founder of Wonderbolt Circus, which is still a significant uh, company in Newfoundland and Labrador. And uh, now, in part, run by his daughter, who's an aerial artist, fantastic, and they do the circus festivals and all that. But back in those days, Benny would tour the island in a station wagon and do one man clown shows in uh, for schools, and. Uh, Amazing. We were all hanging around and stuff, and he was going on tour, and I, I basically said, can I come with you? <laughs> and uh, he said, well, I need someone to drive the van and help out backstage. I was like, take me, take me. And he said, okay. And basically, my school career was, it, I was beyond help at that point. I was only going through the motions of going to school for the social aspect. Yeah. Like, there was no way I was going to be able to graduate unless I went back for another whole year. That was not going to happen. I was going to go off and be famous in a comedy troupe. I got no time for that. And so I, just, and I, I don't know what my parents were thinking. And I don't, it's so funny looking back. I don't know what Benny was thinking because I wasn't even old enough to drive the station wagon. You have to be 25 <laughs> to drive a, a, someone else's vehicle. I, I, I guess I was 17 because I had a driver's license. But, uh, and uh, we, yeah, we would tour all over the island doing clown shows. And I was like, living the dream, baby. Living the dream. <laughs> you were, as I recall, like a like a roller skating robot. I was Bucky the robot, and uh, I had to roller skate, which I couldn't really do. And uh, while Benny was doing costume changes, and I had a big metal head that was made at a made by a tinsmith in St. John's, but it was made for Benny's head. But Benny didn't yeah. like it because he couldn't see to juggle as the robot, so he just had this. Yeah. So he invented. <laughs> Bucky, the roller skating robot, which is me. But I have a ginormous head. Like, my head is actually uh, <laughs> You're leaning bigger. toward me for perspective. I love no, it. No, seriously, <laughs> way bigger than most people on Earth. And Benny has a little tiny head. So when it was in on my head, I, like, my, the eyeballs were up here. So I was literally <laughs> just looking at light on the ceiling. And that's how I would, <laughs> I would move around. And I would often run over children. And uh, once I went right <laughs> off the stage, like I was roller skating and suddenly, whoop, 
I was floating and I was like, oh my God. And then landed and kept going and the kids went wild. It was great. I didn't end up in a wheelchair. Yeah. I was the, and it was a great, great time. But he's still yeah. hardworking and compassionate and wanted everybody to see something live in their oh, life. And Benny was a missionary in that sense because uh, we would, it would be a dollar a child. So you go with $300, say in a school with 300 kids. But then, and then you might do two of those in a day. That's good money. But then we would drive for hours and hours and hours and then get on a coastal boat and go to a community (laughs) where there was 30 kids. Yeah. And then we go to a community where there was 75 kids. And this was costing him money. He was, and he wasn't sponsored by the government or anything. It wasn't like he sold the tour to the schools. Uh, He just did it out of the goodness of his heart because he believed in live theater. And I certainly believed in that because I could remember when I was in grade three and those actors came and what an influence it had on me. So I felt like we were doing God's work too. Yes. Or the circus's work, you know? And (laughs) so, uh, oh, I can't tell you how many people there are in Newfoundland who's probably the first time or the only time they ever saw a live show was, would have been one of Benny's productions. Yeah. For the decade and a half that you did the Rick Mercer report, uh, which is just always been one of my very favorite shows you absolutely kept the same spirit of let's go everywhere let's meet everyone let's decide that everybody's local thing is hilarious and fantastic and you absolutely lived my dream you celebrated local culture wherever you went and i will absolutely put in the show notes the basically atlas of canada you have and all the hilarious like you went to the you did a bunch near my hometown. You, in fact, were only a couple blocks away from my parents' house uh, when uh, you what, what, what was I doing? for Mr. Popsicle. You went to test the idea that Winnipeggers were the hardiest people on earth by being dunked in ice water. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. funny. And people always thought, people always say, oh, my God, you got the best job in the world. And I believed I had the best job in the world. But then they would explain to me why they thought I had the best job in the world. They'd say, like, you get to do everything on your bucket list. I was like, I... <laughs> that shoot you're talking about i was put in a pre-hypothermic state they literally <laughs> yes. sunk me in an ice yes. bath and i had a <laughs> thermometer stuck up my nose <laughs> and down my throat behind my heart just to make sure that i was still alive and they wanted to put one up my other end but of course i said no because we can't show that on camera so thank god so i won't do that but uh yeah there's lots of things that weren't uh, on the bucket list. I was tasered. <laughs> and it never went on television. But I was literally tasered. Like, talk about a, a, a mental illness where that actors would do anything for a laugh. And I never thought I was that guy. I was like, I'm not one of those guys. And then suddenly I was standing there waiting for a cop to shoot me in the back with a taser with cameras pointed at my face. <laughs> There are some moments of genuine fear on your face right before some exciting moments you're having where they're like you're on a dog sledding race and the guy's like, oh, this picks up real fast. You're just about to launch into space pulled by dogs, basically. Or, I mean, they're not all going to be you visiting the Morden Corn and Apple Festival and just holding up corn. I mean, you did some (laughs) really... But that was important, too. Yes, exactly. We're celebrating corn this week. You did. You did celebrate corn. You kind of celebrated everyone. I uh, 
I have this overwhelming love of visiting like world's largest, world's smallest statues. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, for instance, in a small town in Manitoba, there is, in fact, the world's largest replica of a fire hydrant and the world's second largest. Because after yeah. someone thought they built the largest, someone was a real dink about it and built something like three feet, three right. feet higher. And yeah, I just find that the... um the, um, there's something that it does to us where we get immersed in other people's dreams and contexts that in a way, yeah. I don't know, I always find it cures me of, I don't know, narcissism. It cures me of thinking my own problems are. And so sometimes people would try to sell us. I come, you know, there's a group of us come celebrate us like you celebrate everyone else. And we'll be like, well, what do you do? And they were like, we paint miniature figurines, <laughs> little tiny figurines. Yes. And we all get together and we're like, little <laughs> tiny figurines. And you just go, you feel terrible because you couldn't figure out a way to put that on television and make that yeah. uh, like jam packed with action, you know, because yes. you, you needed a special camera to see the figurines. Um, but uh, I, I loved it. You know, you, you meet some people and they would get up in North Bay, Ontario at four o'clock in the morning and drive two hours uh, to a great, a great waterfall that was frozen. And as the sun would come up and they'd just driven two hours down a road and they're in 40, 30 below, they then put on all this really uncomfortable gear and climb up it <laughs> and then come down it. And then drive home in time to go to work. Yeah. And, but I always found it fascinating that they found each other, that this yeah. is what brings them joy, that in their mind, that's what they are. Yeah. They're not an accountant. They're an <laughs> ice wall climber yeah. and, a, and an accountant because yeah. ice wall climbing doesn't pay. <laughs> By vocational. But, uh, <laughs> but it, uh, you know, that's their church. And yeah. uh, that's great. It does shake us out of. I think that was one of the things that felt like it's been lost in the constriction of the pandemic is the feeling that we can be multiple things and that and then by being multiple things, we can sort of, um, yeah, like stop letting our lives shrink quite so much. Right. Being from Winnipeg, it's, it's not like a natural uh, place of self-esteem, I would say. Having lived in the States for a long time, people are confused about where manitoba is or positive right. it's near texas or and you you tell them it's exactly in the middle of canada that's where winnipeg is right? exactly yes and, it's where... but they don't know what canada looks like so <laughs> that doesn't help them it does i uh but having a pride in um being from a place that is wonderfully humble has been something i've kind of always carried with me it's not possible to have a fancy car because it's buried in snow and sand yeah. and salt anyway. It, yeah, it's going to self-destruct. It goes from winter to uh, flooding to hanging worm season, which yeah, I didn't I know. know was univers not universal, to yeah. mosquitoes, and then yeah. back to the, the, the sudden decline. But, and then in the very middle of the city, there is an enormous pile of trash, and we sled on it, and we feel joy. Of course, of course you sled on it. <laughs> <laughs> and yes. in the spring, when it thaws and you can really smell it, then we talk about real estate based on how far or away from the downwind dump we are. And the but nicer neighborhoods are a little more down, downwind. You have got that big sky, which I never understood. I always 
when people from the prairies would talk about big sky, I'd be thinking, everyone's sky is big. What are you talking about? <laughs> Until one day when we pulled over, and I didn't see it from the from the highway, and the sun was setting, we had to pull over on the side of the highway to take a leak. And I walked out, and then I looked up, and I was like, oh, my God. Wait a minute. Is, this is disproportionate. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. This I am just a speck in the universe. Yes. Uh, yeah, you got that big sky. That's pretty that's pretty spectacular. Looking back on so many years interviewing, I mean, every kind of person from politicians who you're making hilarious <laughs> jokes to and around to um the people of Thunder Bay. What do you think um what qualities do you think make us feel most connected is it when you're showing like i'm just thinking of episodes where you show people at their most human and basic like they they want connection they need community i think uh gosh you're really a you're a tough interview aren't you <laughs> usually people say where do you get your ideas i didn't ask me that question um i think i like showing people uh, at their proudest in a way, because they're either proud of their hometown or they're proud of the fact that they are a wheat farmer or they're proud of the fact that they climb that rock wall. And, uh, and you know, when you're watching someone who's proud of themselves, you can't help but feel happy for them. It's, uh, it's fun. It's fun to see. Even if you're going, oh, my God, what kind of mad person would do that? Who would climb up a rock uh, ice wall? And by the way, my... Things haven't changed. I never found that thing. Like when I said I was a kid, I was never, I yeah. liked doing things, but I wasn't fascinated with it. I never found anything that I picked up. Yeah. Like I never picked up the ice climbing. I never picked up demolition derby. I never picked up joining the army. I never picked up oyster fishing. And then all the recreational stuff. Yeah. Skipping. <laughs> Didn't yes. pick any of it up. Totally. No. Oh, no. I, but I, I think, I mean, I, cause I've thought a lot about bucket lists and what do we do with our time? And I have to say, I don't have hobbies. I have friends and it sounds like yeah. you're so good at connecting with people. Maybe, maybe your thing is just connection. Your ability to be interested in everyone and everything and to keep dreaming and reinventing is just an absolute delight to watch. And thank you so much for for walking me through all that dreaminess. That is so kind of you to say, and I'm really interested in you. <laughs> now I am. <laughs> Rick Mercer, everybody. Oh my gosh, that conversation made me so happy because no one celebrates the absurd and oddballs and the Canadian better than Rick Mercer. May it remind all of us to better celebrate ourselves and one another. And because we believe in blessing the crap out of each other here at the Everything Happens Project, instead of Carpe Diem today, let's Crap DM. Let's bless the garbage. Embrace a little realistic enthusiasm to face the day. All right, here's a blessing for what makes us, us. Blessed are you, the strange duck. You with the very intense hobbies, or the collection of stamps, or mugs, or first edition books. You with the hometown that makes you proud, or the television shows no one else is interested in, and yes, you are explaining it right now. Do you have 40 minutes? 
season four is incredible. Not everyone will understand, but these are the things that bring you delight and joy and remind you of who you are. Blessed are we when we learn to be delighted, when we practice our capacity for joy. May we be shocked that in a world of heartbreak, that we can be shocked at all. Blessed is our curiosity and our aliveness when we want to learn anything at all, or when we want to find comfort in the friends we have, the places we love, no matter how quirky or random or obscure. Oh, and blessed are we when we are absolutely basic, when we have a Starbucks order that is actually everyone else's favorite, and we tell everyone about an amazing new dish called bread, and it comes at the start of every restaurant meal. Whether you stand out or blend in with the wallpaper, love only that obscure novel, or post your Wordle score daily, may we never be above delight itself. We discover, we marvel, we play. And in all our intricacies, in all your particularities, my dear, you are a marvel. Don't miss an episode. Be sure to subscribe to Everything Happens wherever you listen to podcasts. Oh, and leave a review while you're there. I would love to hear from you. We always read those reviews and love, love, love hearing your stories. They are really special to us. So come find me online at Kate C. Bowler or at katebowler.com. And if you want, join us for Lent. Beginning on Wednesday, March 2nd, we're inviting you to read along with us as we have a good enough Lent. Learn more and download a free discussion guide at katebowler.com slash Lent. That's katebowler.com slash Lent. Here's the part where I get to thank everyone who makes our work at the Everything Happens Initiative possible. Lily Endowment, the Duke Endowment, Duke University, Duke Divinity School, and Faith and Leadership, an online learning resource. Thank you so much for your generous support. And my team, Jessica Ritchie, Harriet Putman, Gwen Higginbotham, Keith Weston, JJ Dickinson, Karen and Jerry Bowler, my parents, and Jeb and Sammy. Your gifts make this work shine. And I'm Kate Bowler, and this is Everything Happens.